Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Elliot Ness wanted to be bribed. In the back room of the Cozy Corner Saloon, he sat across from Joe Martino, the potato-faced mob boss of Chicago Heights. Ness was posing as a corrupt federal agent, hoping to bait Martino into spilling the beans on where illegal distilleries were doing business. And of course, which cops and public officials were in on the take. He'd gone undercover before, but that was a fresh-faced college student busting kids for drinking illegal booze. This time, he was trying to dupe hardened killers. By this point, Ness had rubbed elbows with enough dirty cops that he knew to play the role. He haggled with Martino over the size of his bribe, confident that the mob boss was stumbling into his trap. The conversation turned heated. Ness was pushing his luck. A silk-shirted hood sidled up behind Ness and conferred with Martino in Italian. Ness didn't think much of it until his informant, Frank Bazil, leaned over to whisper something in his ear. The bootleggers didn't realize the light-skinned Bazil was Italian, so they didn't hesitate to speak freely in front of him. He translated for Ness. The mobsters were debating if they should put a knife in his back there and then. Standing in the back room of the cozy corners, helpless, a single nod away from getting killed, Ness finally realized just how high the stakes were. For the first time in his life, he felt true terror. Welcome to Kingpins, a ParCast original. I'm Howell Hargit. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on Elliot Ness, not a kingpin himself, but rather one of America's most famous federal agents. During Prohibition in the 1920s and 30s, Ness led a team of elite agents famed for their incorruptibility, dubbed the Untouchables. In the wake of Ness's tumultuous life and early death, the legend of the untouchables grew until it became nearly impossible to separate fact from fiction. Though Ness was largely forgotten during his own lifetime, the posthumous publication of his autobiography, co-written with sports reporter Oscar Fraley, ensured that the legacy of Elliot Ness and the untouchables continues on to this day. It's an inspiring narrative, and after Ness's death, the story was picked up by Hollywood. 
The first iteration was a 1960s television series starring Robert Stack, and then a 1987 film featuring Kevin Costner as Ness and Robert De Niro as Al Capone. These adaptations cemented the image of Ness and the Untouchables in the public imagination. Honest, upright, fearless crime fighters, men who allegedly brought down the biggest crime boss in American history. But since the book's publication, many have argued that the whole story was a lie. Nothing more than Hollywood hogwash. Elliot Ness was a fraud, these critics insist stealing the laurels from the federal prosecutors who had built the income tax evasion case that had actually sent Capone to prison. Truthfully, Ness and the Untouchables didn't personally take down Capone. Nor was Ness a huckster who tried to seize all the credit for the kingpin's downfall. In everyday life, he was a quiet, unassuming man who happened to have an exciting, dangerous job. It was a bitterly cold morning in early April, 1931. Dirty snow clogged the streets of Cicero, a crime-ridden suburb of Chicago. Elliot Ness rode shotgun in a truck, leading a convoy of cars carrying his team, the Capone Squad. Their numbers were bolstered by local police, but Ness could never be certain of their loyalty. It was an all-too-common occurrence for Prohibition agents to smash open the doors of what they thought was a distillery, only to find it empty, the bootleggers having been tipped off by the corrupt cops on the mob's payroll. Ness and his team had been planning this raid in secret for weeks. Not even their superiors in the Prohibition Bureau knew what was coming. Surprise was crucial. He wanted to catch Capone's men with their pants down. On that cold April morning, the 28-year-old leader of the Capone squad wore a leather football helmet. He had an affinity for sports and thought of himself as something like his team's quarterback. But the helmet was for more than theatrics. Given what the squad had planned, Ness felt the need for extra protection. He ordered the driver to step on the gas. The truck lurched toward their target a brewery hidden in a nondescript building on South Wabash Avenue. A sign out front declared it the Old Reliable Trucking Company. Gathering speed, the truck hurtled toward the warehouse's large wooden doors. The driver pressed harder on the gas. The wooden doors couldn't put up much resistance to the smoke-belching truck charging toward them, but the steel doors hidden behind were a different story. Ness, though, had been in this game too long to be fooled. He had anticipated the extra set of reinforced steel doors. They were a common defense against raids on Capone's breweries. During previous attempts, the lawmen would beat at the steel doors with sledgehammers while the bootleggers slipped away clean through side doors and secret hatches. Every major Capone brewery was a fortress, a castle impenetrable from the siege of Prohibition. They were built to be raid-proof. Until now. Ness and his men had created a weapon to bust open the illegal stills. A huge, arrowhead-shaped battering ram attached to the front of the truck. Two of Ness's men had cobbled it together out of old streetcar rails, welding late at night with all the secrecy of the Manhattan Project. In the war on illegal hooch, 
federal agents had to employ siege engines. Still, the battering ram had not been tested. They couldn't be certain it would work. As the truck sped toward those steel doors, all Ness could do was tighten the straps on his football helmet and hope for the best. The battering ram slammed into the steel doors and to Ness's great relief, broke them wide open. But the game was far from up. Behind them, he expected to find a vast operation full of stills and barrels with bootleggers scrambling to escape. Instead, he found nothing. A vast darkness, a cavernous empty room. Ness was crushed. He had been duped again, outsmarted, humiliated. Then, one of his men saw light coming from behind a door, nested into the wall and painted black. This empty room was another ruse, a front hiding the real brewery behind black painted walls. His men kicked down the door. Inside, they found exactly what they were looking for, five 1,800-gallon cooling tanks, 14 2,500-gallon vats, 40,000 gallons of beer, and several trucks, not to mention Capone's bootleggers, who were all swept up in the dragnet. It was one of the largest breweries in Chicago. Ness had penetrated Capone's operations. He hadn't put a stake in the heart of the bootlegging empire. It was too vast to be seriously disturbed by any single raid. But he had proved that the Chicago kingpin, who had seemed invincible, could be wounded where it really hurt, his wallet. Perhaps more importantly, Ness learned something about himself that cold April morning. He had always been thrilled at raiding saloons and nabbing mobsters, but this quest was something more. He was hunting the biggest beast in the underworld, Capone. It gave him purpose and a sense of euphoria, a reason to live. But that high of chasing Capone would inevitably pair itself with a feeling of emptiness when the scent of blood wasn't in his nose. According to author Douglas Perry, from here on out, Elliot Ness would do almost anything to recapture the emotional high that came from crashing through Al Capone's doors. Elliot Ness was born on April 19, 1902, in Kensington, on Chicago's South Side. His neighborhood was a hellish industrial dystopia, where the skies were so blackened with ashy smoke that clouds didn't discharge snow, but soot. Alcoholism was pervasive, so much so that Kensington was nicknamed Bumtown. Such tough, ugly towns often breed tough, ugly men. But not Ness. He was shy, sensitive, and doted upon by his mother, Emma. His father, meanwhile, concentrated on keeping their family bakery profitable, rarely saying a word to his family. Though he would live with his parents well into his 20s, Ness would lament that he barely knew his father. Seeking an outlet for his energy, he developed a relentless drive to be the best at whatever he put his mind to. Taking up tennis, he spent hours each day hitting a ball against a brick wall until he could beat anyone at his school. Later, while working part-time at a clothing store, he practiced his salesmanship in a mirror determined to become the store's top seller. Oddly, though, his grades didn't reflect this drive. 
Ness was never more than an average student. Nevertheless, he enrolled at the University of Chicago, at least partially because he was a fan of their football team. He studied business administration and political science. But he was biding time until he could chase his real dream to become a detective. Up next, we'll explore how Elliot Ness's ambition to join law enforcement led him to the Bureau of Prohibition and into a war with some of the most violent mobsters in the country. Now, back to the story. Elliot Ness's hard-driving, obsessive need to be the best had first manifested itself during his teenage years. This nature would continue to serve him in his eagerness to become a detective. Two men in particular kindled Ness's interest in police work. One was Sherlock Holmes, whose stories he devoured as a teen. The other was Alexander Jamie, Ness's brother-in-law, who moved in with the family in 1909. Jamie initially worked as a strike preventer and volunteered as a vigilante for an anti-German group. But he became Ness's hero after joining the Bureau of Investigation of the Department of Justice, the predecessor to the FBI, around 1918. Jamie was happy to mold Ness in his own image, encouraging his interest in police work and teaching him how to shoot a pistol. By the time Ness was ready to join law enforcement, Jamie was working in the Treasury Department's Bureau of Prohibition. Ness was ready to follow. Prohibition made Elliot Ness. It also made Al Capone possible. Without America's dalliance with legally enforced sobriety, it's likely that neither man would have ever become more than a footnote in history. As it was, both went on to fundamentally influence their respective fields, police work, and organized crime. The Volstead Act went into effect in January 1920. Its purpose was to enforce the 18th Amendment, which prohibited the sale, manufacture, and transportation of intoxicating liquors. Alcohol had been the nation's fifth largest business and became illegal virtually overnight. But not everyone was on board with the puritanical moralism that led to the ban on alcohol. Prohibition was deeply unpopular from the get-go. Rather than destroying the booze business, the Volstead Act merely created a vacuum by shuttering legal breweries and their hard-working employees. Inevitably, those willing to circumvent the law filled the void. The irony of prohibition is that instead of strengthening the moral fiber of America, it did the exact opposite. Formerly, law-abiding citizens became criminals, Policemen were bought off on an unprecedented scale, and small-time crooks grew into crime lords overseeing vast, wildly lucrative enterprises. Into this vortex of violence and corruption stepped young Elliot Ness. He joined the Prohibition Bureau of the Treasury Department in 1926 at the age of 24. Ness himself didn't believe in Prohibition. He had started drinking in college, and never stopped. Even while in the Prohibition Bureau, he'd have at least one illegal drink a day. After a raid, he would occasionally gift confiscated alcohol to old frat buddies or the reporters who covered his exploits. 
like virtually everyone tasked with enforcing the ban on alcohol, Ness continued to enjoy drinking. Even President Warren G. Harding, who publicly supported prohibition, still drank while in the White House. The real enemy for Ness wasn't alcohol, but the vicious gangsters who were getting rich by bootlegging and using the ill-gotten gains to corrupt their communities. But besides a drive to take down these kingpins, Ness was drawn to the excitement of detective work, raids, tailing suspects, and carrying a gun. During his first week at the Bureau of Prohibition, Ness discovered an illicit distillery. He was so keyed up to bust it that he excitedly told everyone in the department about it. His partner, Ted Kuhn, knew that the kid had made a mistake by blabbing, but encouraged him to get a warrant anyway. When they went to raid the distillery, they found an empty room. Ness's corrupt fellow agents had tipped off the bootleggers. It was a hard-earned lesson. After that, Ness knew that anyone could be in on the take. No one could be trusted. If the Bureau of Prohibition was intended to fight the sickness of illegal hooch plaguing American cities, then the cure was often worse than the disease. The Bureau was notoriously corrupt. Many agents were on gangster payrolls, while some were fully-fledged gang members themselves. Prohibition agents also had the habit of acting more like cowboys than a federal agency. In their zeal for vigilantism, they tended to shoot unarmed, innocent bystanders. Ness was the odd duck of the group. He carried the Prohibition Bureau's guidebook in his pocket every day, like an evangelist armed with the Bible. He still lived with his parents, whom he would call if he was going to be coming home late. And most unusually, he didn't accept bribes. Little wonder that he was generally disliked by his fellow agents, so he kept to himself. Do-gooder Ness had joined the Bureau ready to make a dent in bootlegging, but he was quickly disappointed. Surrounded by indifferent, inept, and corrupt agents, there was little he could hope to accomplish. During his year and a half at the Bureau, his biggest success was going undercover as a student at the University of Illinois and arresting some co-eds for drinking not exactly worthy of the pages of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But he knew he could do better work if he was surrounded by the right colleagues. He put in a request to join the Bureau of Prohibition's Special Agency Division. The unit was intended to be a more elite force, consisting of 10 squads of investigators headed by a special agent. Their task was to dismantle large-scale bootlegging outfits and to investigate corruption within the Bureau itself. The leader of the Chicago Department of the Special Agency Division was a hard-boiled New York cop named George Golding, who had all the subtlety of a sledgehammer. Since coming to Chicago, Golding's best-known accomplishment was that during a raid on a saloon, one of his men had shot an off-duty court bailiff in the back. Two months after the shooting, Ness joined the Special Agency Division. It wasn't an auspicious time to start, but despite Golding's blundering, Ness believed in the basic tenets of the New Yorker's philosophy. Bootlegging needed to be combated with ruthless, extra-legal paramilitary force. Traditional police work wouldn't cut it. Like Golding, 
Ness wanted to go to war. On the other hand, the young, inexperienced, unqualified Elliot Ness wasn't Golding's first choice for a recruit. But he was the best man willing to do the job. In the aftermath of the bailiff shooting and its accompanying public outcry, no one wanted to join the special agency division, except for Ness. The enthusiastic young recruit replaced the agent who had shot the bailiff and was now under indictment for murder. Ness and the special agency division wouldn't be going after bathtub gin brewers, but some of the most dangerous criminals in the country. In Chicago, when the Volstead Act pushed out legitimate brewers, kingpin Johnny Torrio stepped in. After disposing of his boss and mentor, Diamond Jim Colosimo, Torrio took over the local crime syndicate, which came to be known as The Outfit. Torrio nourished the outfit with blood and booze until it blossomed into the largest criminal organization in Chicago. Torrio approached illegal bootlegging like a CEO. Veteran distributors and brewers, all too happy to remain employed, were recruited. Markets were staked out. Distribution of capital and supplies was carefully coordinated. It was to be an efficient industrial system. In many ways, there was little difference between Torrio and Carnegie, Rockefeller, or J.P. Morgan. If anything, Torrio was too legitimate. Prohibition offered previous undreamed-of profits, but the stakes had been raised. There was no more room for an old-school, gentlemanly gangster like Torrio. After being nearly killed during a gangland squabble, Torrio decided to retire. In 1925, he turned the outfit over to his 26-year-old protege, Alphonse Capone. Meanwhile, the 23-year-old Elliot Ness had not yet joined law enforcement. Upon taking over the outfit, Al Capone soon proved that he was a completely different beast from his old mentor. Torrio was a murderer, to be sure, but he was a businessman at heart. Capone, meanwhile, was a thug through and through. Once, Scarface Al attacked the mayor of Cicero, shoving him down the steps of City Hall and beating him in full view of a police officer, who made no move to intervene. Capone was too powerful to be touched. Another infamous story holds that Capone viciously beat three of his own men with a baseball bat at a banquet, intending to kill them. Unable to finish the men off with the bat, they were stuffed into a car and driven out of town. The car was then supposedly lit on fire, leaving the victims to burn. The baseball bat murders remain unconfirmed, but the fact that such stories about Capone circulated speaks volumes about his reputation for brutality. If Torrio had the mystique of a Rockefeller or Carnegie, then Capone was Attila the Hun. He couldn't have built the outfit as Torrio had. That took negotiation and cooperation. Instead, the entire operation virtually fell into his lap. Nevertheless, Capone expanded operations, conquering neighborhood after neighborhood, murdering anyone who stood in his way. Under his direction, the outfit would become the most profitable criminal enterprise in the country, if not the world. Up next, we'll delve into Elliot Ness's first real clash with Capone's criminal empire. 
Now, back to the story. By 1928, 25-year-old Elliot Ness had joined the Special Agency Division, while Al Capone was brutally expanding the outfit's reach throughout Illinois. It was only natural that the outfit came from Chicago. The Windy City was also the wettest in America. Prohibition was flouted there like nowhere else. Bootleggers handed out at least a million dollars in bribes per month. Cops were just as likely to be found partaking in a drink at a speakeasy as ordinary citizens. And even cops and city officials who might not have otherwise accepted a bribe often did so for their own safety. Chicago Heights Police Chief Leroy Gilbert resisted bribes and was shot to death as a result. Chicago Heights was the most notorious suburb of America's most notorious city, and thus the first target of the Special Agency Division. In two years, at least 20 men had been killed in battles for control of the Heights. Capone came out on top, putting mob boss Joe Martino in charge of the neighborhood. Elliot Ness's brother-in-law and boss, Alexander Jamie, decided to clean up Chicago Heights by taking down Martino. Jamie sent Ness and his fellow agents out into the Heights. They were told not to hide the fact that they were prohibition agents. Rather, they were to flaunt it around town and make it clear they were willing to accept bribes. Ness frequented the Cozy Corner Saloon, enjoying the illegal booze on the first floor, though declining any invitations to the brothel on the second floor. The special agents didn't have to wait long. Bootleggers were always eager to have feds on the payroll, both for protection and for the information they could provide on their rivals. Martino took the bait. Ness was invited into the back room of the Cozy Corners, where he and Martino haggled over the size of Ness's bribe. When it seemed like it would be more trouble than it was worth, one of Martino's goons offered to put a knife in Ness's back. For perhaps the first time, Ness experienced real dread. But he pushed the fear deep down inside him and kept his cool, a habit he would have for the rest of his life. Thankfully, Martino decided not to murder Ness, but agreed to a $1,000 a month bribe. Ness spent months pretending to be a corrupt agent, always handing over the bribe money to his superiors. But despite his consistency, he couldn't manage to crack open the organization. Though Martino believed that Ness and his partners were corrupt, he still didn't trust them and kept the details of his operations well hidden. Thus, Ness couldn't find out who else was on the payroll or how Martino's bootlegging organization worked. Finally, the head office told Ness and his fellow agents to cash in and do what damage they could. So they girded themselves with sawn-off shotguns and raided the cozy corners. One agent collected so many surrendered revolvers that a sex worker at the scene called him Tom Mix. Raids on 18 illegal distilleries soon followed, with brewing equipment and ledgers captured in abundance. No serious damage was done to the outfit's operations, not yet, but it sent a powerful message. Martino was arrested and spent the night in jail. He posted a $10,000 bond, was released, and got a ride back to the Heights. 
he stepped out onto the curb on East 16th Street. Moments later, a black sedan rolled up, windows down. Martino was shot several times and fell to the ground dead. The sedan pulled away. He hadn't been back on the street for more than two minutes before being gunned down. Capone had ensured that Martino wasn't going to rat. Other liabilities were similarly disposed of. 11 days after Martino's death, a Heights bootlegger was thrown out of a car with two bullet holes in his head. Another goon who had been arrested was found hanging by his necktie in a Kensington jail cell. It was not clear whether he had committed suicide or been knocked off by crooked cops. To add to this, yet another man was found in a drainage ditch, shot in the eye four times. He was later identified as Frank Bazil, the government witness who had warned Ness of Martino's violent intentions back in the cozy corners. Bazil's death rattled Ness. He started carrying a sawn-off shotgun at all times and always sat with his back to the wall in restaurants so that no one could get the jump on him. He never showed fear, never expressed his panic, not even to Edna Stahl, his girlfriend and future wife. Since he was in school, Ness had a reputation for always staying calm and playing it cool. But that didn't mean he was truly fearless. The truth was that he simply stuffed the fear deeper inside and pushed ahead. He didn't want his anxiety to get in the way of his work. The only evidence of the strain was his habit of biting his nails and picking at the skin on his fingers until they bled. He was right to be anxious. Just after Christmas, as Ness and his partner, Albert Neighbors, were driving in the heights, they noticed they were being tailed. Ness told neighbors to swing into a narrow side street and then turn the wheel and slam on the brakes. The car screeched to a halt, blocking the road and forcing the tail to stop too. Ness jumped out and grabbed hold of the driver, a heavy-set Italian man, while neighbors jammed a sawn-off in his face. Ness searched the driver and found a revolver with its serial numbers filed off, filled with dumb dumb bullets typically used to kill big game. Ness was certain that gun was meant for him. He'd narrowly cheated death. Others weren't so lucky. By the beginning of 1929, it was estimated that at least 60 people had been murdered in connection to bootlegging in Chicago Heights. It was the highest per capita murder rate in the country. The Special Agency Division didn't want to spend another year losing ground in the Heights. So on January 6, 1929, they made their move to sweep the city clean. In the pre-dawn morning, on the icy corner of 95th Street and South Park Avenue, a legion of law enforcement soldiers gathered. 15 special agents, including Ness, 10 U.S. Marshals, and about 100 Chicago police officers. The federal agents put the cops into small squads and deputized them all with authority to work outside the city, not unlike knights dubbing their squires before battle. The police had no idea where they were going. It was always best to keep everyone as ignorant as possible for as long as possible to prevent the mob from being tipped off. The makeshift army piled into their cars bristling with shotguns, rifles, and submachine guns 
and headed toward the heights. Once there, they split up, each squad heading toward its assigned target. Before they could strike, however, the feds had to ensure that the bootleggers wouldn't be warned. They had to seize City Hall. Chicago Heights City Hall was also headquarters for the city's police department, which remained firmly under the thumb of organized crime. Deputy Police Commissioner of Chicago John Stege took command of the ambush on the building. He told his men to wait on the front steps while he entered alone. Stege demanded the keys to the castle from the desk sergeant, who handed them over without protest. He went to the station's jail cells, the only occupants of which were three sex workers. Then he announced that everyone in the station was under arrest, except for those already facing charges. That is, the three sex workers. The women were released, and the station's policemen were locked up in their stead. Even the local chief of police was put in a cell. With the Chicago Heights City Hall under control, the Great Raid could begin. Twenty private homes were broken into. Suspects were yanked out of their beds and dragged off in cuffs. Most, caught unawares, gave up with a fuss. Twenty-five mobsters were hauled into the Chicago Heights police station. Dozens of shotguns and pistols were seized, along with 400 slot machines, which the police smashed with hammers. In the wake of the raid, 81 defendants received a conspiracy indictment, including local outfit leaders and two former police chiefs. Chicago Heights, one of the most crime-infested towns in the country, had been cleaned up for now. Ness, at the center of the success, should have been elated. But instead, the thrill of the raid quickly wore off. He felt empty. The high of the chase had given way to the low of depression. When he wasn't on the hunt, Ness was a black void. The hard truth was that while the Chicago Heights raid was a terrific success, the Prohibition Bureau had really only caught guppies. The shark still swam free. Capone was as powerful as ever, his empire barely scratched. Any hope that the Chicago Heights raid would encourage mobsters to keep their heads down and put a stop to the violence was quickly dashed. Just one month later, the most famous mob hit in history was carried out. Valentine's Day, 1929. Seven men were gathered in a garage on Chicago's north side. Five were mobsters working for George Bugs Moran, one of the few bosses left who still opposed Capone. One was a safe cracker turned mechanic. The seventh was an optician who enjoyed hanging around gangsters and pretending to be one of them. At about 10.30 in the morning, a pair of men in police uniforms entered the garage and ordered the gangsters, mechanic, and optician against a brick wall. Then, the cops ushered in two more men in long coats brandishing Thompson submachine guns. The rattle of gunfire filled the room. The 50-round drum magazine of a Tommy gun could be emptied in five seconds. Moran's men were eviscerated. Some of the 45 caliber rounds tore through the victims only to ricochet off the brick wall and right back into the dying men. After the first Tommy gun went dry, 
The second was fired into their bodies. The shotgun finished off the mechanic, blasting off half his face. With the grisly deed finished, the men in long coats exited the garage with their hands held above their head. The cops marched them off at gunpoint to make it seem that they were under arrest. The group easily slipped away in a Cadillac, never to be identified. But clearly, those officers were no policemen. One victim, Frank Gusenberg, briefly survived the massacre. Shot 14 times, he was taken to a nearby hospital. When questioned by the police, he told them, nobody shot me. A true mobster, he kept to the code of silence until the end, dying within the day. In the aftermath of the hit, Chicago was shocked. Most everyone assumed it was Capone's handiwork. While it's never been conclusively proven that Al Capone was behind the St. Valentine's Day massacre, he was the likeliest culprit. He had the most to gain by the murder of Bugs Moran's men, and the brutality of the hit matched Capone's reputation to a T. We aren't certain of Ness's reaction, but he was most likely appalled. It was exactly the kind of reckless violence and base thuggery he had joined the Bureau to combat. No matter how powerful Capone had become, he could not be allowed to get away with such brazen brutality. Though Ness was not directly responsible for the events that followed, it's undeniable that the St. Valentine's Day Massacre led to the creation of the Untouchables. Before the massacre, many had looked up to Capone with a sense of awe and admiration. Prohibition was hugely unpopular, so there was something almost heroic about a man who snubbed his nose at the legislation and continued to give the people what they wanted. He had also created an image of generosity. During the depths of the Great Depression, he kept soup kitchens open and was said to drive around town tossing silver dollars out of his car window. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre shattered Capone's mystique. The public still wanted to drink, but they were fed up with the gang wars, the endless violence. Even New York kingpin Lucky Luciano called Chicago a real goddamn crazy place. When Lucky Luciano calls your town unsafe, perhaps you've gone too far. Something had to be done about Capone. The men who sought to put him behind bars needed to fight fire with fire. They needed an agent who could brawl with Capone in the streets. They needed a winner. Their search would lead them to Elliot Ness. The United States Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, George E.Q. Johnson, was convinced he could take down Capone with charges of tax fraud. He'd been building a case against Capone since he first took office. But in the aftermath of St. Valentine's Day, Johnson's bosses decided more aggressive tactics were needed. Another U.S. attorney, William Freilich, was sent to Chicago to help build a clandestine unit within the already elite Special Agency Division. This special Capone squad would focus solely on hitting the kingpin where it hurt most, his illicit income. In November 1930, on the recommendation of his brother-in-law, Alexander Jamie, 28-year-old Elliot Ness was selected to head the Capone squad. He would operate outside the Prohibition Bureau, instead working under Freilich and Johnson as part of the U.S. Attorney's office. 
Ness would lead a team of special agents in a war against Capone, raiding his breweries, dismantling his distribution, and gathering evidence of his bootlegging operations. Through their work, this team would become known as the Untouchables. They'd risk their lives in a Herculean effort to smash organized crime in Chicago and beyond. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore just how much The Untouchables really contributed to Capone's downfall, as well as Elliot Ness's struggle to find purpose in the aftermath of Prohibition's repeal. For more information on Elliot Ness, amongst the many sources we used, we found Elliot Ness, The Rise and Fall of an American Hero by Douglas Perry and Scarface and the Untouchable by Max Allen Collins and A. Brad Schwartz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Kingpins was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>